0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm Lee Schmidt, the host of today's special edition episode, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse. AANP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. Acne vulgaris is one of the most common skin disorders encountered in clinical practice. It affects almost 650 million people worldwide, and represents the eighth most prevalent disease globally. In the United States, approximately 50 million people are affected by acne. So today we are sitting down with two NP experts in the field of dermatology to cover everything from acne treatment, to risk factors, to strategies on how to manage patients with acne using telehealth, especially during the current pandemic. It is my pleasure to now welcome nurse practitioners, Doctors Deborah Shelby and Allison Lowy to the episode, and I will now open the floor for introductions.
1: Hi, I'm Deborah Shelby. I've been practicing dermatology for 21 years in in Florida and also in New Mexico. I centered my education for my DMP and my PhD around dermatology and started the National Academy of Dermatology MPs in in 2010 with a group of leaders in in derm at the time. And we focus all of our education on teaching nurse practitioners the specialty of dermatology. I have owned practices in Florida and New Mexico since 2012. And my focus is clinical practice, research, education, and we offer online and live programs. Why is acne important to me? Well, it's really about getting it right the first time. Side effects of medications, including irritations uh, from the medication poor outcomes, really can deter patients from seeking care for their acne. One poor or failed attempt can greatly impact the patient ranging from discontinuing treatments creating psychosocial or psych- social cultural impacts resulting in more anxiety and depression on top of what they already had from just from their acne and i really like this opportunity to discuss the importance of early management including scarring and dyschromias
2: And I'm Allison Lowey. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today. I'll briefly introduce myself. I'm a board member of the National Academy of Dermatology Nurse Practitioners, Fellow of the American College of Dermatology Nurse Practitioners, and I graduated from the Dermatology Nurse Practitioner, uh, the DNP Dermatology Residency Program through the University of South Florida College of Nursing. Currently, I practice in the Tampa Bay area in Florida, and I've been practicing dermatology for close to 10 years. I see acne patients every day in practice, and I'm actually considered to be our resident acne expert. So I see about 95% of all the acne patients in the practice, if not more than that. I know that treating acne can be challenging at times, but I do enjoy it because I have a vested interest in this patient population for a few different reasons. One, because I was um, fortunate enough to experience acne and the personal struggle that goes along with that from the age of 10 into early adulthood. So I understand the toll that it can take on the person that's suffering. And two, because I understand that acne not only affects a person's physical appearance, but also their mental well-being. And when you can improve someone's self-worth and self-esteem or just make a person feel more confident and happier, you realize that you're really doing something that's important. So oftentimes it's not just treating the acne, it's so much more than that. And it's surprising to read some of the statistics on acne and mental illness, but Because it's such a visible skin condition, it can have very profound effects on mental health. And it might surprise you to find that 92% of patients that have experienced acne say they have felt feelings of depression at one point or another, and up to 14% have had thoughts of suicide. And I recently read a systematic review and a meta-analysis of 40 studies that was published in the journal of the American Academy of Dermatology and found a statistically significant association between acne vulgaris and depression and acne vulgaris and anxiety. So this is just one of the reasons why early intervention is so important. And one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about intervening early and treating acne. So let's just jump right into the patient visit. When a patient presents to the office, the first thing we do, regardless of the chief complaint, is to take a good history and perform a thorough physical exam. The cause of acne is multifactorial and management can require complex decision-making, so we need to have enough information to create a personalized regimen for each patient. Taking the time to perform a thorough history and physical is important for multiple reasons. First, we need it to determine the appropriate and most successful regimen and to let the patient know that you care. And this includes asking pertinent questions and taking the time to speak to the patient, listening to their concerns. History is very important and it also includes a physical exam and the physical exam evaluates the patient and their type of acne. You wanna look closely at the patient's face and actually touch their skin. It shows that you're invested. And when you're examining the acne, make observations about the type of acne that they have. Is it inflammatory? Is it comedonal? Is it a mix? Where is it located? Even if the patient just presents with a chief complaint of acne on the face, you want to take a little extra time to look at other areas of the body, like the back or the chest, because sometimes they don't always mention other areas of the body that are affected. And they just assume, well, if I can make my face better, that's enough, and I'll live with the acne on my back and chest. So we want to evaluate other areas of the body in addition to the face. And this is important to establish a holistic plan of care for the patient. During COVID, we had to resort to treating some patients via telehealth methods. And there are definitely some benefits and limitations to that. Uh, Benefits are obviously convenience for the patient and during COVID less potential exposure, the ability to reach more patients. However, there are some drawbacks like the reliance on technology that doesn't always work perfectly and generational differences and the ability to utilize technology properly. And it also greatly limits the ability to assess the patient. And so I found that in teledermatology, it works best, in my opinion, for follow-up and for continued management of the patients whose acne is well controlled. But until that time, I prefer the visits to be in person if possible. Deborah, do you have any experiences with telehealth or what would you add to that?
1: Yeah, Allison, you know, telehealth has its place. I just feel that probably one of the pros is patient convenience. But really, if you're going to treat acne correctly, you need to have that close assessment. I want to see the the patient's pore size. Do they have telangiectasia? Looking at the texture of the skin, oiliness, are they dry in certain areas? I touch their face. Do they have sebaceous hyperplasia? Do they have combination dermatoses? Do they have keratosis pilaris? There's such subtle differences that I really like all of my acne, acne visits, especially within the first three months when they're going through their transitions to be in person. And so I think uh, a lot of derm specialists feel the same way. But again in the times of COVID we had to adapt to the situation and and it was useful um but again all of my all of my clinical visits are in person I prefer it to be that way plus I want to have that rapport with the patient so it's hard to the cameras just don't pick up any of the subtle differences and and honestly I'm just so old fashioned I just uh, you know technology is great but it certainly has its limitations so I'm old fashioned, but I definitely agree with you on all of those points. <laughs> well, I'm a lot older than you, Allison. <laughs> I'm a Remember, I think uh, you know back in the day uh, there were very many dermatology NPs when I started. So we've come such a so far in in our practice, which really excites me. And, and of course, you've always been a shining star, being my second resident that graduated through the program. So I know that you're. You know, with your all of your experience, uh, your patients are, I'm sure, in very good hands. And with that, you know, Allison and I got together and we said, what what did we what would we want in our practice when we were first starting out to make our lives so much more easier in the assessment? And so we came up with these tools. We created um, three tools. And one of the first ones, and, and these can be handouts. So, AAMP did an excellent job on, on putting together the do's and don'ts for us. We put it, uh, made a list for them, and they made it into a nice graphic handout that you can give to your patient. We know that time is of the essence, and we're seeing with the demands of patients and dermatology visits. We don't have a lot of time to spend on everything that we want to teach our patients. So these are really useful tools. So the do's and don'ts of acne and the rosacea is is something that you can give to the patient. It goes over about makeup. When do you throw away makeup? What type of makeup are you supposed to be using? I always tell patients about their foundation and, and ask them the most important question. Do you realize that uh, a lot of the makeup and foundation has animal fat and I won't go into where they get that animal fat but it certainly can clog the pores and your makeup can be one of your worst enemies during the acne program and then just things about not not popping your pimples causing more scarring or or dyschromia but most implor- and most importantly the dues that that are being gone over with that program We want you to tell us if you have an issue. We want you to tell us if you can't get your medication. Don't wait until if you're having an issue with the application and if you are experiencing an adverse event, call us right away. In 21 years of practice, I've never had a patient that I have not been able to get on on a retinoid. It's all about how you prescribe it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that down the road in the program, but there's it's slow and easy is my motto when it comes to acne treatment. And so um, as far as the acne routine, the tool that we developed, this is actually part of my medical record. So we keep a copy in our record. We, I do have an EMR, but we, we scan it in and it's a, it's a handout so that the patient can go back and take a look at when they're supposed to apply the medication and how they're supposed to apply it. So it's really, really a a valuable tool for your patient, um, but it also serves as, a, like I said, as a medical record so that you can go back. It, It cuts down, I can't tell you, with your medical assistance, how many patient phone calls are reduced because the patient's not calling back and saying, how do you put this on? How do you do this? And, and, and so in a, you know when you're talking about giving all these medications, it's not just about them getting it right and how to apply it. You have to really make sure that they know that you can actually afford the medication. Giving them five different acne medications and them not being able to financially afford it is obviously going to impact your patient outcome. And sometimes patients won't tell you that there's an issue because they might be embarrassed. Um, They don't want to admit that they can't even afford benzyl peroxide. Certain benzyl peroxide is upwards of $20 plus. And the other thing that you want to make sure is finding out what do they do for a living. Getting to know your patient is so important. Will they even be compliant? I can tell you not many men are, or young men are going to sit there and put five different types of medication on their, on their skin. And so it's not just about glancing at them and saying, Oh, you have mild or moderate acne. I'm going to give you blah, blah, blah. And and follow this algorithm that, that Allison's going to talk about uh, the, the provider in the assessment and evaluation form that we put together, you can have your patient, these are just general questions that you can actually have your patient fill out while they're waiting for you. And so it really does help with them getting the information to you so you don't have to sit there or your medical assistant has to sit there and ask all the questions. But in addition to that, we did a little bit of a cheat sheet. Right now they're trying to get a global universal grading system for acne, uh, right? We, we went ahead and put the morphology. So when I give lectures on um, morphology and dermatology, that is so important. You have to speak the language when you go into a foreign country, you have to know that, that language, right? And so we just did a little cheat sheet about the common terminology that we have, uh, that we use in dur- with, with the acne uh, descriptions. And then we also talked about some severity classifications. How do you score somebody as mild or moderate or severe? And then we also did a grading scale, one through four. So that is something that you can use, again, to help you with your assessment. We also put some medications down for you that are commonly used that you might see in primary care that will impact acne. And then, of course, some differential diagnoses. And I touched on that. Don't, when I teach my students, I say, don't get fixated on just, you see one thing and then that's it. Oh, I just see acne. Look at the whole patient. And maybe they have on their face, maybe they have keratosis pilaris that goes back to touching your patient and maybe they have a little bit of subderm. You need to see all of those diagnoses and in order to properly come up with your treatment plan. And so I know Allison's going to go ahead and talk about the algorithm. So after you do your patient evaluation assessment, then you're going to transition transition into this algorithm. And the algorithm is a great tool
2: um, that kind of summarizes some treatment strategies, but of course it's meant to be used With the other tools that we've developed Uh, the algorithm will include the morphology and information about workup and treatment regimens for multiple degrees of acne vulgaris ranging from mild to severe and then we have on the algorithm as well acne conglobata and acne fulminins, which are less common but very important that we're managing those appropriately and then hidradenitis suppurativa and acne rosacea. And so just to summarize um, the acne vulgaris component, mild acne we're generally treating with benzoyl peroxide and then we can add uh, topical retinoid if needed. And then as the acne becomes more severe and we get more into the moderate category, in addition to the benzoyl peroxide and the retinoid, we also recommend a topical antibiotic Or there are alternative options like topical dapsone or azelaic acid. Um, And then for severe or inflammatory acne, a course of oral antibiotics are indicated, but always with topical medications. We're not using oral antibiotics as monotherapy. And so this tool is a great guideline. It's a beneficial reference, especially when you're just getting started with acne management. But as you become more comfortable, your management strategies will evolve and they'll change as you start to see some improvements in your acne patients and you notice what's working for you and what's working for the patients that you're treating. Um, Although this is a great guideline, we always want to remember that we're striving to provide a personal. plan and so there are always special considerations for different patient populations one of which is patients with skin of color I know Deborah, that you have a very diverse patient population where you practice so do you mind talking a little bit about how you manage diverse populations and maybe some special considerations um, that you talk about with these patients
1: Sure. I absolutely love treating skin to color, ethnic skin. And my first exposure to, if you've done a, if you've done a lot of traveling and you get outside the United States, you realize you get your, the door is open to different cultures and experiences. And so when I first was introduced, I never really thought about the impacts. In, in America, we want to get a tan everybody's out there trying to get that gorgeous tan. They're going to tanning booths. But then when I went to Egypt and then I'm in Egypt and it's 120 degrees in the pyramid and I see Asian population with hats and long sleeve shirts and gloves on their hands and they're covering their face. And I asked, I said, my goodness, it's 120 degrees. And then somebody explained to me, that there are social impacts with th- the different types of skin tones or increasing of dyschromia, a darkening of the skin and the cast system. So it really intrigued me. So I started reading up as much as I could on the impacts of just post-inflammatory, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and melasma. And any type of dyschromia, it doesn't have to be hyperpigmentation, it actually can be hypopigmentation. And we have to remember that when we're doing these medications that either one can happen. And just like pityriasis alba, the inflammatory process of pityriasis alba, which is a form of eczema, actually causes a hypopigmentation in skin of color. So when you're treating acne, it's imperative that you don't especially in some cultures that you don't make their skin darker because you irritated their skin. And again, as time went on with my experience, I had patients that would come in, um, people from India and more of my Asian population that really were in distress because the medications that they were given caused their skin to get darker. And they were in tears. You can see their husbands were there. And I started talking with the husbands and I started trying to learn more about culture. And their husbands would say to me, you must fix her face. You must. Because it was not only a reflection on the patient, but it was also a reflection on the man. And so it was really, again, really intriguing. I think more research is definitely needed on the psychosocial impacts of of what we do with our treatments, especially creating the PIH, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And so diversity in your clinical practice is an everyday occurrence. And I think as providers, we should seek out educational opportunities to understand these patient populations. As we know now in the forefront, this this type of approach to patient care is at the forefront of all medicine and, and rightly so. And clinical presentations of co- even common dermatoses, they present so much differently in darker skin tones, or what we call the Fitzpatrick skin types four to six. You may have a combination of dermatoses like we touched upon. Again, the keratosis pilaris, rosacea, eczema, subarrea, all of these can be combined with your acne, and it's going to impact how you approach this patient. And so that is where a lot of people get into trouble because they just don't recognize the different types of uh, of these these dermatoses that have to be treated differently. And ethnic skin is the when we talk about the social the psychosocial impact, when the there's a couple of research articles right now that the, they show in the Southeast Asia that the lighter skin, when you have lighter skin as a South and from an Asian population, that shows privilege. And again, that darker skin is often stigmatized and it is a marker of lower socioeconomic class or a caste system. And when we try to fix acne, like doing microneedling or chemical peels or lasers, typical things that we do for Caucasian patients those are things that we don't even think about because they don't have typically have the issues of the hyperpigmentation. Now coming from Florida, we're a melting pot. We have a huge uh, African American, black, brown population. We have Asian population, we have Indian population. And happy to report that in New Mexico, it's the same thing. But I found a little bit difference in in New Mexico. There's not a huge uh, concentration on really addressing how to approach that patient and going slow is and not jumping to these other modalities to try to fix the scarring. Patients, they read, they're in the beauty magazines. They want this, they want that. They want the quick fix. Well, when you're dealing with skin of color, there's not a quick fix and there's not a quick approach to acne. The the standard treatment of starting them on retinoids, going very slowly, I go very methodically with them, I bring them back frequently, making sure that they're compliant, making sure that they're not having any type of irritation or dryness. The studies are showing now terrazetine and combination medications like adapalene and BPO combinations that they greatly reduce inflammation and scarring. So within a six-month time, these patients are getting great reduction in their scarring without these other modalities. So just take a step back before we just throw everything but the kitchen sink at these patients, and then we work. We wind up with a worse problem. I love the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology. It's a great resource. Uh, for the new dermatologic medications that are out there. Uh, we have cerocycline right now, which is a new oral antibiotic, and Allison will go over more about the antibiotics. They have the cerocycline the has a narrow spectrum of activity, which helps with resistance. And there's also new foams that are out there, like minocycline, which have less photosensitivity. So keep up with the new with the new medications that are available. And when we talk about these newer medications, just make sure that when you're dealing with this special population, that you understand the mechanism of action and we're not creating a more difficult situation to treat than than just the acne. Allison, do you have anything to add? Actually, I do want to add something
2: to that Um when we're talking about treating scarring and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and it does take time i think the most important thing when we're talking to the patient is to communicate that and let them know this is our plan we're going to use these medications it's going to help with your scarring it's going to help with the discoloration but it's going to take some time so we have to exercise some patience and if we just educate patients with, um, and let them know what to expect in a bit of a time frame. I think they're more accepting and willing to um, wait to see that result. So rather than just giving them something or prescribing it, we need to really talk to them and let them know, and ha- let them know and have a realistic expectation. Um, and then I, I don't have anything else to add about ethnic diversity, I think you covered that really well. But I do want to talk briefly about treating acne in the pregnant population, because this is a special population that we see oftentimes coming into the clinical setting. Um, During pregnancy, we know that acne can worsen. Sometimes it gets better. Sometimes it's a new onset of acne. And so it's kind of unpredictable uh, during pregnancy because of the hormones. And so this can be a really frustrating time because there are not a lot of acne medications that are safe to use in the pregnant population we have some there are a few that are considered safe uh, some of which are topical clindamycin we use topical erythromycin topical azelaic acid and salicylic acid and if the acne is very severe or highly inflammatory there are times where we'll introduce oral antibiotics like erythromycin but topicals are definitely preferred and we should always have the benefits outweighing the risks when we're treating patients that are pregnant. I always recommend getting approval from the patient's OB before starting any medication even if it's just a topical medication. And then just as a general rule, it's important to remember that during this time, the skin is very sensitive. And so we want to be really gentle with the skin. And our skincare regimen should be gentle. Our moisturizer, our washes should be gentle. And we want to avoid any harsh or abrasive treatments during this time. Um, are there any other specific patient populations that you think clinicians should look out for when we're treating acne or any other common disorders we should be aware of that might be associated with acne that you
1: see? Yes. As you can tell, it's a pet peeve of mine, Allison. You got, you have to look at the patient. You know, in the age of EMR, which I'm not a fan. I like the paper. I told you I'm a dinosaur. I think that we focus too much. I think the provider—it's the same thing as in nursing. Stop treating the monitor. Look at the patient. Everybody wants to be on that computer typing away and writing their notes. I have my medical assistants who type up and and do my transcription. But take for the providers who don't have a medical assistant, and I know you want to get to your notes and 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 uh, write down everything. Please take the time to look at your patient. Don't focus. It's a common error to just focus on one problem. Look at everything. Pick up these subtle nuances in a patient that has been gone, that has been missed. And I can't tell you here, in here in New Mexico, I cannot tell you how much PCOS, polycystic ovarian uh, disease or syndrome, um, hormonal abnormalities, metabolic syndrome, thyroid issues. We have an obesity problem here, not only in America, but specific populations. We have uh, in, in the United States, they, it's, you know, in Florida, I always laugh. I go to Florida, and it always makes me want to lose weight because everybody's out there jogging and doing all kinds of stuff, and they're thin and they're, they, you know, that, that everybody's looking good in their bikini because they have to go to the beach. Well, not America, all of America is not like that. So there's other populations that obesity is, is really prevalent. And so what comes along with obesity? We can have that metabolic syndrome, that acanthosis nigricans. Look at the back of their neck. Look at their, if they have bad acne problem, uh, the, if their severity is bad, I will always go ahead and do blood work and work them up for PCOS. Part of the questionnaire is, how are your periods? You can look at acne after you've been doing this for for a while. You can look at acne and just tell this is just not right. And when a patient comes in, especially a younger girl, and she says, my periods are just not normal, please take the time to do a workup. I probably do more. On a given day, I think I write at least 20 prescriptions for blood work. And a lot of it has to do with just these other comorbidities. Do they have thyroid issues? And insulin resistance is very big here. So if you see that acanthosis nigricans, by the way, this is a board question, Allison. Um, As far as most people make the mistake of just ordering a hemoglobin A1C or just doing a glucose check, the CMP with LFT, right? If you don't do an insulin level, you are missing the boat. And so insulin resistance Is you may not see it affecting your glucose levels, but you're they. I've had patients in the 400s with results and their glucose levels were fine. And these are kids that are 12 and 14 years old who are coming in weighing 240 pounds and they're coming in for acne. But guess what? They have PCOS, which we know PCOS causes what metabolic resistance. And so please. Um, We're actually Anna Jackson and I, uh, Anna Jackson, she's a pediatric derm NP. We're doing some studies right now and some articles on these important topics in New Mexico, just because it's an alarmingly, uh, really a huge problem um, with this population here, and especially in the pediatric population. So
2: on the physical exam, you mentioned acanthosis nigricans, and then also obesity or being overweight, not always, but typically they're obese or overweight. And then what else might you see? Abnormal hair growth, um, uh, abnormal hair distribution. So you may see growth on the face in females that you're not typically seeing. Uh, The acne is sometimes, not always, but inflammatory acne with a distribution on the jawline, right? What else am I missing? What other physical features could we look for when we're trying to identify the PCOS patient?
1: Well, I just think it's a good history and you won't always see the facial hair, but it is definitely obviously a clue, the hertuism. But again, the even with the female adults, a lot of times we won't catch PCOS if they don't come to us, and the patients are coming in, and they're 30 years old, and they're frustrated, and then you start going through your history, and they've said, "Oh, I've had this," and and they've just gone undetected this whole time, and and we, yes, we give spironolactone, and I know you're going to talk about that, uh, but please, if there, if a patient is on birth control, it might mask. So, or even spironolactone, sometimes they get started pre- uh, previously, maybe in primary care and they haven't gotten blood work. So one of the things that I do caution is if somebody is on spironolactone for acne, I actually will have them come off of the spironolactone and get their blood work after having them been off the medication for at least 30 days. Because I want to see what their levels are. I want to see what their DHEA uh, I want to see what their free and total testosterone. I want to see what their estrogen levels, FSH, LH. And so all those things, a uh, thyroid levels, and don't forget the anti-TPO as well, because acanthosis nigricans, as, as we don't just test the TSH, we also do T3 and T4, but anti-TPO is extremely important as well. And so clinical features can be as a mild patch of hyperpigmented patches all the way to the more severe velvety plaques, very thick plaques. And uh, again, you have to look and have them take off their shirt, take a look, ask them if they have anything else going on. But again, it's that, that assessment, asking those questions ahead of time, extreme, extremely valuable tool. And I also will ask, If they've had any hair loss, because with higher levels of testosterone, you will see some gradual hair loss with elevations in the testosterone.
2: That's really, um, really insightful, because I think that PCOS is underdiagnosed, and you may be the first one as a dermatologist in the dermatology setting to make that diagnosis for the patient, and it affects so many other organ systems and so many other things besides just their skin and their acne. And when it's undiagnosed, we often see these patients being treated incorrectly. Their acne is managed incorrectly for very long periods of time, and they may be on oral antibiotics for years and not really seeing much improvement. So that's a great, those are great tips, and that's an important patient population to look out for so we can treat them appropriately. And I want to talk a little bit about oral antibiotics actually and how to use them properly in the acne patient population. We cannot forget to discuss this. Um, Systemic antibiotic therapy definitely has an important place in the management of inflammatory acne, but not all acne is inflammatory and not all patients need oral antibiotics. It doesn't really benefit patients with comedonal acne or what we would call blackheads. Uh, to use a common term, systemic antibiotic candidates are patients with erythema. They have pustules, nodules. They're getting the scarring and they're getting the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. It doesn't have to be severe. It can even be present just mildly. So, but it needs to be present and um, inflammatory for the antibiotics to be beneficial. And so now that we've identified the right patient population, how do we use them? Always, always in combination with topical medications and for a short term of roughly two to three months because the goal is to use the antibiotic for their anti-inflammatory properties and to decrease the inflammation while the topical medications have time to be effective. And then after two to three months of therapy, the goal is to stop the antibiotic and maintain the benefits or the clearance on the topical medications. We most commonly use tetracycline derivatives like doxycycline, minocycline, and then the newer antibiotic seracycline. But there are other options that are sometimes used. If patients can't tolerate these or they have allergies like azithromycin and Bactrim, but not first line because we try to reserve these medications for other health conditions. And we always have to think about antibiotic resistance. So that's why we're using um, the tetracyclines most commonly, and for the shortest, and, uh, the shortest effective duration possible. And while patients are on antibiotics, I always recommend, especially for two to three months, I always recommend a probiotic just to protect the gut and the normal flora. Um, any other clinical pearls that you have or anything
1: you wanna to add to the antibiotic? Sure, yes, absolutely. Um, thanks, Alison so I can't, again, I'm going to emphasize writing down everything. If, if these medications are not used properly, you are just creating more of an issue because they will not be working effectively. And then you'll have a resistance. I will not prescribe anything past three months. That's when we typically will see whether, whether it's topical or, or oral, uh, uh, topical antibiotics, because you will get a resistance. And I've seen patients come in and they've been on the same medications for years, and it, the, it, no wonder why the patient's frustrated. And you know, it's f- the the instruction sheet. Make again, make it part of your med- medical record so you have, you can easily go back and see what the patient has been prescribed and how long they've been on the medications. You know, we um, we do have a lot of gram negative acne because of how much antibiotic use that we have. And so yeah, I agree with you about reserving sulfa medications for that instance. And I know that there is some hesitations with being on antibiotics for about three months. I had a pa- actually a patient's mother who called and she was a dietitian, and she's like, oh my goodness, like three months of a- antibiotics. But It does take sometimes at that point that we're weaning off that antibiotic as we're weaning off towards that three month, it takes the tretinoin time to work. Everybody thinks tretinoin just poof, it's done. It works magically. No, the the tretinoin that we're using um, along with, I always give the example, you can't win the football game with just one medication. It takes the team. So it's not just about prescribing antibiotics. You have to, I, as far as I'm concerned, tretinoin is the most important medication in the whole acne routine. I second that. <laughs> you second that. <laughs> and it's often mis, either overlooked or not used because patient, because actually prescribers don't want to hold the hand. It, it does come with a little hand holding and a little bit of expertise on how to use it. But my goodness, you're leaving out like the quarterback, right? That's tretinoin. You have to. the shrinks sebaceous gland. What causes acne, folks? Oil. So if you don't control the oil in acne, you have missed it. And so, uh, again, really writing the things down, taking your time. And something that I learned very early, Allison, I'm sure you did too. Uh, maybe not so much in Florida I didn't experience it. But again, we talk about cultural differences. Well, there's a culture here in in New Mexico that the the pediatric population having babies. And you have to ask. I actually have the patient sign, are you pregnant? Are you trying to get pregnant? Are you lactating? Because we have We have kids coming in as early as 15, 16 years old who are coming in for acne and you just assume, oh, they don't have a child at home. They don't have the child with them, but you really need to, that clinical pearl is you must each and every time I actually have them sign, they're not trying to get pregnant or they aren't lactating. It's just a liability, you know, with my, I've been doing medical malpractice now for again, 21 years. And uh, it's I can't tell you how important it is that they understand that number one that these medications can cause birth defects or harm to the fetus, and also even through lactation. So you have to be very very uh, careful with that. And um, and if they're on birth control pills and you're giving oral antibiotics, you, they have to use another form of birth control because obviously they can get pregnant. It affects the efficacy. That's really
2: good. Um, Writing it down is very important. I agree 100% because when you're in an acne visit, it's a short time to go over a lot of information. And so patients don't remember everything that you say. So I always write it down too. And then I just recommend just tape it to your bathroom mirror so you know where it is. And you can refer to your written instructions at any time. Um, but yes, very important. And I'll also give a tretinoin tip um, on how to use that since you talked about how important it is. And I completely agree 100%. It's the most important tool that we have in treating acne. And so, tolerating tretinoin tip. First, um, always recommend to start slow and then increase. So with a lower strength and I would recommend the patients use it at night and use a gentle moisturizer to the skin first and then put the tretinoin on top of it. That helps to decrease irritation and promote tolerability. If you suspect that they may be sensitive or they have a drier skin type, you may have them start every third night and then advance to every other night and eventually nightly if they can tolerate that. But if they can only get to every other night, fine. It's better than nothing. We need to tolerate it because we really need it. It's very important. Um, Anything else you want to add to the tretinoin tip?
1: Yeah. I just thought of something, you know, sometimes it's a cost issue. And a lot of times we have to compound these medications because it's not covered by insurance. And let's, let's face it. We're all, we're all frustrated with prior authorizations. And there's so much as far as hoops that you have to go through. And, and sometimes you do have to wind up compounding. And so what I do instead of them, if, if you, if there is a cost issue I might get, let's say you're going to use, I like tretinoin gels, by the way. So you have to, let's talk about, we haven't talked about that, Allison. So the vehicles, you don't give creams to somebody who has inflammatory nodulocystic um, acne. It's just, does. it's not going to work. Same thing with open comedones. It's, it, giving the cream is just going to be useless for them. Uh, there is a way, like Allison was talking about, go ahead and start slow. You can go on a good, do a lower dose. You can even for me, if sometimes I'll even mix and put a little bit, I'll tell them do a 50, 50 mix. So let's say I'm going to use tretinoin 0.025 and I'm worried about inflammation. So sometimes I'll even take that and say, do take a pea size of that and mix it with a little lotion, kind of dilutes it, and we're talking about the economical issue here is that way they're not having to get two different strengths because you really want to progress them as quickly as possible without them having to get a whole new tube. So sometimes I'll have them just mix it. And yes, it does dilute it, but that's what you want. So I just, I just say, be that mad scientist out there. Just go and with expertise, you're going to be able to, with time, look at that patient and just you're going to know who's going to be the problem, the problem patient. And when I mean problem patient, I'm talking about the one who's going to have irritation. And so it only takes them one time to get their face irritated, and they will abandon the whole treatment. And then and or you have their mother calling up and or father and yelling at you because their 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 child's face is is irritated. So go ahead and like Allison said, go very slow. You can do two days. You can do three days. You can do it once a week. And please be careful about benzoyl peroxide, especially in skin of color. When you're using, I always tell patients, I would rather keep your benzoyl peroxide percentage low and increase your tretinoin. Because the tretinoin is the better drug and eventually your sebum production will be decreased. So no, I, I harp on this, know your mechani- mechanisms of action, know your drugs, know what they do, and, and then you will understand better how to combine these medications safely. That's great.
2: Thanks for the extra tips. I hope that we've provided a good overview of acne management, and please don't forget to look at the tools we've created to assist you in treating acne. I know that many providers don't necessarily enjoy treating acne because it can be challenging for different reasons. But I highly encourage you to jump in, get your feet wet, even if you're not comfortable now. I think that you'll become encouraged as you start to see patients getting better and you learn what's working and you're more comfortable treating acne and with the medications and the patient populations. People are generally very grateful for good acne treatment. And this is a time where
1: even teenagers will say thank you. Yeah, I I agree, um, Allison. And. I think we need about two hours for this discussion. Actually, I think that we, between the two of us, we can go all day long on acne. And uh, again, I I did forget something. So I'm just going to add this little tidbit. I, I know it's, it's hard for me to keep my mouth shut, but I have to put this in here, but know the severity when you talk about your algorithms, know when topicals and oral antibiotics are not enough. Know your acne to say at some point, I need to put this person on isotretinoin. We, we didn't talk much about isotretinoin, but without a doubt, it's one of those medications I feel has gotten a bad rap and when properly used and it's used safely. But when you're dealing with the more severe forms of acne, we talk about resistance and kind of like a little wrapping up. It's I find it's far better to put somebody on Accutane or isotretinoin, I should say, Accutane's the old, old school, isotretinoin um, than to do one year of antibiotics at different antibiotics, and you're creating a resistance in these poor kids who one day they're going to need that important antibiotic one day for a true infection. So... Um, I know we didn't get heavily into that, but definitely look at Allison's algorithm and just have those discussions early on, and it will really help with the frustration when, you, uh, when you're talking with the patient about uh, with these treatments, because it is frustrating when you have severe acne and you've been wasting five years of your life on ineffective medications. So I really do appreciate you having us. I hope we didn't talk your ear off, but um, maybe we can have a part two or three, that would be up to AAMP and we welcome any questions. I don't know how, uh, maybe we can get some questions sent to us. I know I'm in New Mexico um, or you can catch me on NADMP and you can send any questions through the organization as well, Allison's on the board. So we uh, we welcome any any input from the crowd. I hope everybody has a great rest of the year.
0: Thank you so much, Deborah and Allison. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you both today and experiencing your passion for dermatology. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed today to your own practice. If you're a nurse practitioner and not currently a member of AANP, I urge you to consider joining your Professional Organization. Membership gives you access to the AANP CE Center and hundreds of free CE activities with new ones added weekly. Don't forget to visit the AANP Tools and Resources webpage to download all of the great resources mentioned today. Finally, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes.